good, it's relative. We always good compared to, you know, this person is good because certain characteristics. But when we see good associated with God, it's not an adjective. It's a noun. It's the essence of who he is. He can't be anything but good because that's his character. C.S. Lewis said people think it's going to be a casual thing to look at the like perfect goodness in the face when we stand before God. He said, but he thinks we'll all be trembling. And uh, be like, I can only imagine, do I dance or do I fall down on my face? And if we're like others who encountered him, we'll be on our face because of who he is. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good according to the Bible. And we might say, well, you know, really and truly, whatever is good out of us that we come and we lay it next to God, it's like filthy rags. So anything of us is not acceptable. It all has to be of Him. We're going to go to Romans chapter 4 if you have your Bibles. And we're going we're gonna to have... We're going to have fun in Romans chapter 4. Uh, one of the most important books in the New Testament. And you understand the first five books are books of history. Verse 4 are accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. The fifth book is the early history of the church. Uh, first number of years as the church uh, went about fulfilling the Great Commission. And then after those five books... Everything up to Revelation is either an explanation of Christian theology or how that theology is applied in everyday life. Sometimes it's directed to people as a whole. Sometimes there's individuals. Uh, Revelation is a unique book. It falls in the category of Daniel. Uh, It's um, prophetic from start to finish. But out of those books between the first five and the last book in the New Testament, probably Romans is the most important book we have. Just because it covers everything about basic Christianity. Um, You've heard me refer to Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life. Well, that book changed my life at the ripe age of 21. I was a sophomore, first-year student in Southeastern Bible College, and Dr. R. R. Paul Wood was teaching Romans, and he required us to read Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life. I was raised in church as far back as I can remember. I was in church. My parents uh, both came to the Lord when I was, my mom, I think, when I was a toddler, and my dad shortly, not far after that. I thought I'd read Romans until I was reading that book, and I asked myself many times, says, why, didn't, why haven't I seen this? This was in Romans all along. I, I would read more, and I says, wow, this was in Romans? <laughs> it's like, what book have I been reading? Or where was my attention? And, uh, and why, why would Watchman Nee, and, it was, and the normal Christian life is about Romans, it's a book that examines Romans, and that's the title of Normal Christian Life. Why would Watchman Nee do a summary of Romans and the title of 
of his notes would be the normal Christian life. Well, let me show you the definition of normal, and it might start some application. Uh, up on the screen, there's the definition of normal, and then there's the etymology of the word. Interesting etymology. Normal means conforming to a tight standard or regular pattern or what's expected. And if you go to see where the word comes from, it's um, from Latin, normalis, which uh, literally means according to a carpenter's square, a rule, a pattern, literally. Uh, norma means carpenter's square. I thought, how many women named Norma know that? <laughs> Did you know you're... A carpenter square. <laughs> I, thought, I don't think people be naming. Well, I'm nobody in here named Norma, is it? Or Norman, maybe. But um, I, and I want to show you this uh, little hand square here. Um, it's that's the pattern, and it's an exact. There's no improvement on that. Are you following me? So everything that the carpenter does has to meet that pattern for it to be right. And look at Romans this evening as a pattern or one that presents pattern, the pattern, for what is a typical carpenter square Christian life. You know, we have what is called SOPs, Standard Operating Procedures. So how about a SCL, Standard Christian Living? What is the standard? Because sometimes we can get used to something and think that's the standard. But the original standard is in the book of Romans. So the question that we have to ask ourselves this evening is what is our pattern, and how are we matching up to that pattern, especially that found in the normal Christian life? Interesting, interesting. Uh, this little tidbit about uh, Watchman Nee, if you don't uh, know much about him, he is uh, Chinese, uh, born in China. Um, at an early age in his teen years, really became a um, very skilled at reading the Word of God and teaching and... Uh, did some lectures over in Denmark uh, in the 40s, you know. Um, communist China was starting to form and shape, and, and it became pretty hostile to Christians. So in 1952, he was imprisoned, um, and he spent 20 years in uh, a Chinese prison and died in 1972. This uh, book was published in 1957 for the first time by a group in India. Watchman Nee did not write this book. Somebody took notes of what he taught in Denmark and a group put the notes together and that's the book. A lot of you might read Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highs. I don't want to bust any bubbles, but he did not write that. His wife, Gertrude, took notes from his preaching 
he died at a very young age. I think he's in his 40s. In 1917, he was ministering in Egypt, I think to the Australian soldiers in World War I that was stationed there. And he had appendicitis and died from that in his 40s. His wife, I don't even, she may have been with him, may not. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I've, I went through that before. They had a daughter, and she passed away not many years ago at a very elderly age. But 1917, he, he didn't write the book. But Gertrude took all these notes and started making devotions out of them. And if you have my utmost for his highest, that's his wife's taking meticulous notes. She was like a court reporter back in England where they were from. He was also a very gifted artist. But look at, look at a guy that didn't even get out of his 40s and look since 1917, 100 years, look at the people he's still influencing just because of the pattern of life that he lived and he was, he was preaching that to these Australian soldiers. So when you think about what is the norm, what is, what is the pattern you can go back and look at what, what uh, not Watchman Nee said about some things. Let me just give you a little sample of this book. This book explains the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ as good as any book I've ever read. That the remedy for our sin was in a dual uh, application. The blood of Christ and the cross of Christ. Here's what Watchman Nee said, the blood of Jesus deals with what we have done, whereas the cross deals with what we are. Let me repeat that. The blood of Jesus deals with what we have done, the sins that we have committed. The cross of Christ deals with what we are, a sinner, under the power of sin. The blood disposes, he said, the blood disposes of our sins while the cross strikes at the root of our capacity for sin. That's why you find in Romans him saying, therefore sin has no more dominion or power over you. Doesn't mean you don't sin, it just means that it doesn't rule you. The times that we yield to temptation... You know, that wasn't, you know, something we had to do, right? As born-again people, we, when, we, when we mess up, it's not because we had to mess up because we were a sinner under the power of sin. The blood of Jesus washes away all of our sins. All of them. Not most of them. All of them. Sins that we don't even know we committed. He says, is that possible? Well, somebody will tell you a sin that you committed against them and you didn't know you did it. How about that? So what is the normal Christian life? What is the pattern? What is the carpenter square in spiritual terms? And what constitutes whether or not we are applying our lives to that pattern, to that square, that, that rule, that one that determines if we're doing things in the right way? Um... If you look at the Bible, God is a master of patterns. Look at how he created things. Started with the firmament, the heavens, and then the hot edits, the earth. And he started with this ecological balance thing. 
going from uh, and, uh, the fish to the fowls to mammals and then to humans. And he had all of the vegetation just... He prepared it for each level of life that he was creating. He also created the pattern of family. And when you get to Moses leading the people out of uh, Egyptian bondage into the promised land, Abraham's ascendants, you see a pattern begin to form that this book really zeroes in on. He gives them a system, a norm, a carpenter square. What, what do you think the carpenter square was? when Moses led them out of Egypt? What do you think the pattern was that they had to fit themselves to? The law, but what was before the law, at the front end of the law? The two tablets that was in, the the Ten Commandments was the first thing that he got. And he brought them down and then he busted them. (laughs) And he had to go back up and God had to do two replacements. But it was those, but if you think about it, this pattern was already starting to take shape. The, the uh, Ten Commandments are mentioned in Exodus 20. And they're repeated over in Deuteronomy, which is a second rendering of the law. In Exodus 20, it gives those Ten Commandments. One of those commandments, I think it's commandment number four. Anybody want to try to take a stab at it? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But listen to this. This is, this is one of the... Ten Commandments. But four chapters before Exodus 20 and Exodus 16, listen to this. You know, we're going we're to zero in on Romans 4, but just listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? And that's what was the name of it. What is it? (laughs) I think manna means that. What is it? Um, For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread of the Lord that he's given to you to eat. This is what the Lord had commanded. Each one of you is to gather as much as he needs, take an omer, For each person you have in your tent, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. But when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. And it's not a very nice uh, description. It was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers, one for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses, and he said, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest. This is not in the commandments yet. This is not written in in the law. It seems as though when God rested in creation, it was a principle that he wanted man to have all through, even before the law. The law's not in place yet. So here it is. The Lord commanded, Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left. Keep it until morning. 
And so they saved it in the morning, and Moses commanded, and did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are together, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will, there will not be any. Just a change of recipe. There was something added in heaven. A preservative, a 24-hour preservative. And so it didn't rot or anything. And this became the norm. This was the norm for people. This was every week, every Saturday, every seventh day is a day of rest. And they had food left over from the previous day that did not go bad. On Friday morning, God would, would give them the same amount of manna they collected, twice as much. And so the people lived by that pattern. Now let me take you to Romans chapter 4. That was the pattern. But God was about to introduce a new pattern. And uh, we're going to look at what is that pattern? What is the pattern we have today? Track this with me. Romans chapter 4. You ready? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about, but not before God. And what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know where that's found? It's Genesis 15. Justification by faith started where? It started early, didn't it? So is the law and the Ten Commandments supposed to be the norm for righteousness, or was it a tool to point them to a different carpenter square that they had to fit? Watch this. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, if we work for any of our approval from God, then God doesn't give it to us. He's obligated to give it. It's under obligation. He owes us approval. If, in fact, there's a possibility through our good deeds, we gain his approval. You see, it's impossible to do that. It's impossible no matter how much we do. It's kind of like uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If we have wisdom that we can just understand all things and, and love, sacrificial love, and just give our bodies as a sacrifice for people and, and have faith to move mountains. But he says, if it's not generated by his love, it's all for nothing. It's just stuff. And this is what he's talking about. However, to the man who does not work, who does not try to impress God with what he can do, but rather trust God who justifies the wicked, trusts God, who has authority to tell people your sins are forgiven. His faith is credited as righteousness. It is given to him. It's not under obligation. It is given to him because it's a gift through faith. David says the same when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And this is Psalm 32. Justification by faith did not just show up in the New Testament. It was predicted and prophesied. And the one who's given as a model in Romans 4 is Abraham, who predates the law by hundreds of years. 
And he's been dead a long time. In fact, his descendants spend 400 years in Egypt alone before Moses leads them into the promised land or to the promised land, but on Mount Sinai he gets the law. This is probably 600 years at least that long from the time of Abraham. And yet he's using Abraham as an example. And here's David, King David, writing this, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And that's not all he had to say. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The Lord will not hold him responsible for his sin. Now that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because if, if you get a ticket and you know somebody in the judge's office and you call them and they waive it. See, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about preferential treatment for one person as opposed to the other. When the law is broken, there's a consequence. Even though somebody might not have to pay that consequence, they might be given mercy. But this is not what he's talking about. Blessed is the man... When God forgives them, does not hold that against them anymore. That was prophesied by David himself. Here's some questions, and I hope you don't miss this. Oh, this is good. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He's talking about a norm, a pattern here. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Here's another question. These are important questions. Under what circumstances was it credited? Abraham predates the law by hundreds of years. So it says in Genesis 15 that Abraham's faith was credited to him for righteousness. All right, when was that happen? When did that happen? What was the circumstances? He even asked this. Was it after he was circumcised or before? This is, this is a question that would mean a lot more to the mixed congregation in Rome of Jewish people and Gentiles. Because the circumcision of, of baby boys when they were eight days of age was like the seal of them being a true Israelite. This is the true Hebrew. This was the seal of this ethnic blessing upon the people of Israel. And he says, now... When was Abraham accredited for faith? Was it before or after he was circumcised? He answers the question, it was before. It wasn't after. That's verse, verse 11, or verse 10. It was not after, it was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he already had. He was already declared righteous before he did any of the things that God wanted him to do as an Israelite. He had faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is a father of all. You ought to circle that. Because Abraham wasn't on this earth just to start the Hebrew nation and the Jewish nation. He was here to become a father of, what? Many nations. He was here to pull everyone who would walk with God by faith into a faith pattern, a pattern of normality with God. 
So he's going to be the father of all who believe and have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them, given to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham. In other words, he says, circumcision alone is not what determines a Jewish person's faith. It's whether they're living in the faith that Abraham lived out. Faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law, and here's introducing a different aspect. First is circumcision that he's doing, now he's going to the law. It was not through law. It was not through circumcision because he was justified before that. But it's also not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. If you can get to God any other way through faith, that makes faith worthless. And it, and it takes away the power of the cross of Christ. If, if we could get saved any other way, why would he die on the cross? To give us a, another way, another option? No, it's because it was the only way. And Abraham was trusting in God's promise that God would do what he said he was going to do, and that was credit to him as though he was saved, that he was righteous. Because law, verse 15, law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. You, you don't know. You don't know the boundaries until you go over them, and you find the consequence. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. This gets really good here in just a moment. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. You know, it's like the song, Abraham has many sons. Well, that's true. We are the sons of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is a father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. <laughs> Boy, just think about that tonight when you go home and try to figure that out. That God can bring things out that doesn't exist against all hope. And he's really talking about Abraham and Sarah. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. Believed what? What did he believe? He believed God's promise. And what was God's promise? That he'd have a son. He and Sarah would have a son. Not he and Hagar will have a son. That was, that was a mess up there. You know, they tried to manufacture the fulfillment of God's promise. It didn't work very good, did it? So he became the father of many nations so that your offspring will be Without weakening in his faith, verse 19, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Remember that verse up in um, verse 17? That God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. All basically, Abraham's reproductive capacity was gone, as was Sarah's. And yet, Abraham believed even though his body reproductively was dead, and his wife's body was dead, that God could still do it. 
God could still give them a son. And it says, since he was about a hundred years of age and Sarah's womb was also dead. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Boy, that ought to be a cue to us in how we handle the promises of God. It'd be neat if we just learned to give him praise in advance, wouldn't it? Before little Isaac came along, he was still... He was giving God glory, being fully persuaded. Verse 21 is kind of like the formula of how this works. If you want to really highlight a verse, this is it. He was fully persuaded. All of them start with a P, so it's easy to get this formula. Abraham fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Here it comes. The promise comes. Then the persuasion comes, and then the power to make it happen comes. It starts with something God says, and Abraham has to ponder this in his mind and heart, and considering his own age and the age of his wife, he still came to the conclusion and was persuaded against hope and against the, the tendency to not believe this. He still believed it and was persuaded that God had the power to do it. And that's how things happen. Verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for... Boy, you ought to watch this because you're, you're about to step into Scripture. You're here with this. You're in the Bible. It was credited to him, not only to him alone, but also for us, us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I was, I was talking to someone in my office this week, and uh, he, he came to just give me a good report. Some great things were happening, but he had had a series of terrible things, and, and he doubted the Lord, and he was telling me about it. And, and, oh, and I, I pray for this young man, and he's now in a good place. But I, after a while, I said, did, did any of the things that you were de dealing with that was awful put Jesus back in the grave? Did that negate the resurrection of Christ? I said, then why do we, when we go through a terrible time, begin to waver when no matter what happens to us does not reverse what happened three days after Jesus died on the cross? The tomb is still empty, and the Lord is just as real on our good times as He is when we're going through bad times. He is the constant. So here we go. It's credited to Him. For He was raised over to life, or raised over to death for our sins. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. There it is. We're justified by faith. And believe it or not, we are, we are like the, the legacy of people who discovered Romans. When religiosity reduced Christianity to ritual. You know, I, I, saw, I saw a picture of the day. There's something I want to see. It's on my bucket list. I want to see... The Dead Sea Scrolls. I want, I want to go 
to the museum. I understand they, they have a traveling part of that museum that comes through, and I was like, why didn't I know about that? Somebody needed to tell me. So I could go to Mobile, wherever it was. I think it was in Mobile. But you just think about something that was written and rolled up 200 years before Jesus. And when they opened the canisters, it didn't dissolve into dust. And the scroll of Isaiah, the entire scroll of Isaiah was one of the things they found in those caves down in the Qumran outside of the Dead Sea. But I saw something the other day, and, and I sent it to a friend of mine. and said, do you know what this is? And it was a certificate of indulgence. An actual certificate. <laughs> they didn't have a name written on it because it wasn't sold. <laughs> Nobody bought it. <laughs> but it, it's, it's written in Latin. And, you know, you can make out some of the words. But it's an actual they have like just a handful of these relics that was going on when Martin Luther, the guy showed up at his town and his parish and was wanting to sell these to people in his parish. You know what I'm talking about, right? An indulgence. Um, the Catholic Church had a fundraiser going to build the massive St. Peter's Basilica that's in Rome where they have the big gatherings. They had a fundraiser going, and, man, they hit the jackpot because they told people that they could get, like, future certificates or coupons to do away with their sins. And if you buy these, you, you, you can cash them in for forgiveness. And, of course, Luther just completely said, no way are you going to do that here. And so he went and sat down and he wrote out 95 objections to the stuff that the Pope was doing and posted it on what we call Halloween, but it's All Saints Day. And it's just amazing that the guy didn't get killed. You know, they wanted to kill him, but he's just like, the Pope is wrong about this, the Pope is wrong about this, and you're not selling them here, get out of town. You're not selling them. We're not buying any of those. Do you realize that it was Romans that he was reading that blew up his idea of what it was to belong to God and that he could only be saved not through the sacraments, not through doing everything the right way, but you could only be saved through faith. And he wrote his own commentary on Romans. And one day they were being read in England on Aldersgate Street, and a young man named John Wesley was listening to Luther's words about Romans, and he got saved while listening to that. Can you see the dots that we're connected to? That's why when you open this book, especially when you open Romans, you know, I, I don't even know if um, we're supposed to do church the way the New Testament I don't, I don't even know if what we do here tonight is kind of like what the New Testament did. Probably the Apostle Paul would come in and say, you're not supposed to do it this way. <laughs> but we're used to this kind of relaxed atmosphere because of this book. We're not coming in trying to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and hope and hope 
that God will somehow see our tenacity to do everything just right so that we can be forgiven. Aren't you glad that there's mercy and grace? Doesn't mean we get to do it any way we want to, but it means the reason why we live for God is not to try to get His approval. It's because we already have His approval. And He wants us to have His blessings as well. That's the bonus. He justifies us by faith through His grace. But oh, how He wants to bless us as we start venturing out and doing what He wants us to do. Would you stand with me?